Gresham College Presents Family Relationships and the Law Cousin Marriage by Baroness Ruth Deitch, DBE, Gresham Professor of Law. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to my fifth family law lecture of this session. I'm addressing the concept of civil partnership today. It has been estimated that some 5% of the population is gay. Sometimes you hear 10%. From the Buggery Act, 1533, until 1861, some homosexual activity, albeit always limited to men, carried the death penalty. We recall the famous case of the Marquess of Queensberry, whose accusations against Oscar Wilde there he is, led to the latter's being charged and convicted in 1895 to two years hard labour. Only half a century ago, homosexual activity was still a crime. In 1953, 2,267 men were prosecuted for homosexual offences. In 1956, 118 convicted men who were in a consenting relationship, were sent to prison. In those 50 years or so, homosexuality has moved from criminal status to legalisation, from legalisation to acceptance and equal respect with heterosexual relationships. Liberalisation came, as ever, in the form of a report by a member of the establishment, in that period when so much changed, the late 1950s and the legislative reform period of the 1960s, the Wolfenden Report of 1957 opined that there should, be, there should remain a realm of private morality and immorality, which is, in brief and crude terms, not the law's business. John Wolfenden was Vice-Chancellor of Reading University in the very town where Wilde had been incarcerated. His recommendations led to the Sexual Offences Act 1967, which legalised homosexual acts in private between consenting adults. Since then, acceptance and recognition have grown, advanced by the Human Rights Act 1998 and the Equality Bill of this year. Gay couples may adopt children, they have access to fertility services and full parentage of donor-conceived children. Same-sex childless couples are deemed to be a family for the purpose of succeeding a deceased partner to a tenancy. This trend culminated in the legislative establishment of civil partnerships in the Civil Partnership Act 2004, creating a union almost identical to, but not, marriage. The Equality Bill of 2010 will further protect such rights. There's been such a sea change that the Conservative leader has promised that civil partners will benefit from extended paternity and maternity leave in the case of adoption or artificial insemination babies in the event of an election victory. The Tory leader has also promised that proposals to extend flexible working and married couples tax breaks would be granted as well.
he has stated that the party is no longer hostile to same-sex couples. The question now is not the public acceptance of the union of two people of the same sex, but whether this legally recognised union should be called marriage and be exactly the same as marriage. The famous legal definition of marriage is given by Lord Penzance in the case of Hyde and Hyde, 1866. He said, I conceive that marriage, as understood in Christendom, may for this purpose be defined as the voluntary union for life of one man and one woman to the exclusion of all others. Such is the transformation of family law and family life that not one word of this remains true. Christianity is not the only form of marriage, nor the only concept accepted. Marriage is not for life, but only until one or other party exercises rights under divorce law. It is not to the exclusion of all others, in the sense that not all adultery leads to divorce, and some polygamous marriages are recognised here when the family has come from a country abroad where it is legal. Only the voluntariness of marriage remains, the union, and even that is under threat <coughs> if cohabitation is placed under a legal regime. And now it's the one man and one woman element that is ceasing to matter. It is, however, odd that same-sex couples, or some of them, should be so exercised about wanting the right to marry, as distinct from entering civil partnerships, which are just as replete with rights and responsibilities as marriage. For this is an age when heterosexual couples are apparently deserting marriage in favour of cohabitation, and when we are told that marriage is nothing but a piece of paper, which may be ignored or overlooked, or that it's a male plot to dominate women and keep free household labour and childcare, that marriage is a cloak for abuse and overwork. Some feminists don't like marriage because it stands for the power of a man, privileged status, the privatisation of care, the cult of romance and opportunity for domestic violence. Albeit that women's claims for money from the man when the marriage or cohabitation ends are unabated. Yet their lesbian sisters want to be able to choose to get married. Many same-sex couples today reject the notion that civil partnerships are different but equal, rather as American blacks rejected that same equivalence, separate but equal, in the days of segregation. The concept was overturned by the civil rights movement. The differences between marriage and other unions is fast dwindling. Marriage is no longer defined as relating to procreation, for many heterosexual couples don't or can't have children, whereas many same-sex couples do, either from a previous relationship or by donor insemination or other artificial reproductive technology. Marriage has declined in numbers. Remaining single is far more acceptable than it used to be. Both Labour and Conservative governments have incrementally removed the differences between married, cohabiting and same-sex couples by, for example, removing the tax allowances for married couples, 
allowing singles and same-sex couples to adopt, extending domestic violence legislation to all couples, calculating benefits by household occupation rather than status, extending occupation rights to partners and parental responsibilities for children to all categories of persons. A marriage certificate is not required for partners' rights in relation to banks, income tax, pension schemes, gym membership, hospital decisions. Judges tend to agree that giving rights to same-sex couples does not harm the concept of marriage, and indeed they're rather cynical about marriage itself. Lord Millet said in the case of Gaydan and Godin Mendoza, which was a case about the right of a gay partner to succeed to a protected tenancy. Marriage is the lawful union of a man and a woman, he said. This is the very essence of the relationship, which need not be loving, sexual, stable, faithful, long-lasting or contented. A persuasive alternative view is presented below, coming from South Africa, but it has also been argued that the desire for the marriage facility is odd. Despite the crumbling of the once sacred image of marriage, same-sex couples want to enter that status, although one may wonder whether it is in order to reform it, as feminists have called for, or to capture the fantasy, as it has been called, for themselves. Some writers are surprised that same-sex couples want to consider marriage because it is a devalued relationship, not worth bothering about and too outmoded. The arguments against this I will present shortly. Parliament has legislated for civil partnerships. They are different from marriage in just two respects. A civil partnership can only be civil, never wholly religious as a marriage may be. And adultery isn't a ground for dissolving a civil partnership, nor is consummation a criterion for validity, either because of the difficulties of definition or, as some have alleged, because notions of fidelity are deemed to be different in same-sex relationships. Infidelity could be subsumed under unreasonable behaviour as a ground for seeking dissolution, even though not available in its own right. It's been argued that many heterosexual unions would happily dispense with religious possibilities and the ground of adultery too, and that what one should do is make marriage more like civil partnerships rather than the other way around. The number of weddings has fallen to a record low since the late 19th century. It seems that people no longer care for these types of formalities because religion is a waning force. Women have financial independence. There is state support for lone parents. Children are no longer labelled as illegitimate. Divorce is easy and there's no recrimination over sex and birth out of wedlock. Finding the essence of marriage as traditionally understood and how it might be different from a civil partnership is difficult in these circumstances. Nevertheless, the fact that a civil partnership is designated as not marriage seems to some commentators to indicate that it is inferior. The Civil Partnership Act 2004 provides for the registration of a union between two persons of the same sex with qualifications just like a registry office marriage. They mustn't be under 16 or within the prohibited degrees or already married or in another civil partnership. They are qualified to adopt, 
can become step-parents of the children of the other one, can apply for residence and contact orders in relation to children, and financial provision for themselves and children on dissolution of the union. There's provision for wills, birth registration, tenancies and social security, as if married. Under Section 27, the court can dissolve the union where the partnership breaks down or annul it if it is void. Like married couples, there can be no dissolution until one year after the union. There can be residential home orders, non-molestation orders, pension splitting and property orders, just like divorce. I know of no reported cases, but 180 civil partnerships were dissolved in 2008, compared with 42 in 2007, and most involved female couples, according to 2009 figures from the Office for National Statistics. I imagine there may be difficulty in assessing the proper financial provision to be made on dissolution because the usual judicial assumptions about economic dependence cannot be made. In 2006, 18,000 civil partnerships were entered into. In 2007, nearly 9,000. In 2008, 7,000. And a total of 34,000 since the Act of 2004. In 2008, men made up 53% of the civil partnerships with the largest number being registered in Westminster and Brighton. The issue now is whether human rights legislation means that same-sex couples can require their unions to be entered into by marriage and be marriage. At the moment, the prohibition remains. Section 11 of the Matrimonial Causes Act provides that a valid marriage can be entered into only by a male and a female. This might be said to be inconsistent with the Articles of the Equality Bill of this year that prohibit discrimination in areas of family and private life and between the sexes. If so, is it for the judges or for Parliament to take that final step for same-sex couples? The religious factions have fought successfully for their existing exemptions to be retained in the Equality Bill of this year in order that they, the churches, may make choices determined by faith in employment and services offered. At the last minute in its passage, however, and promoted by a defender of gay rights and religious supporters, there was an amendment that would permit churches, if they wished to, to allow same-sex couples to have a ceremony in church. The House of Lords voted for this by a substantial majority, and it remains to be seen whether MPs will follow suit. Amendment 53 to the Equality Bill, moved by Lord Alley and supported by Baroness Butler-Sloss, provided that a new clause should be inserted in the Civil Partnerships Act 2004 to remove the prohibition on civil partnerships taking place in religious buildings. And there should be put in the necessary regulations to allow religious buildings to be used to host civil partnerships. But the amendment expressly does not oblige religious organisations to allow civil partnership ceremonies in their buildings. The debate recognised that liberal Jewish congregations, Unitarians and Quakers were prepared to do this, 
but it was likely that many Church of England and most Catholic churches would not. The opposition arguments were that the law so far had carefully preserved the distinction between civil partnership and religious or civil marriage, and that this amendment would blur the difference without explicitly raising the question. The other objection was that once such religious settings for civil partnership celebrations were permitted at all, it would be regarded as discrimination on the part of an individual vicar to refuse to hold such a ceremony in his church because he, the vicar, was availing himself of the right to refuse in the amendments, but that he could, under, he could undertake the ceremony and was therefore open to legal action on the ground that he was discriminating himself on the grounds of sexual orientation in the provision of services. The charge of discrimination against an individual would trump the exemption in the amendment. The legal detail of the amendment means that the partnership may be celebrated in church, but still not along religious lines, for that is still not allowed under the Civil Partnership Act. It's not clear whether an individual registrar with objections would be able to opt out of performing a ceremony at religious premises, and whether the decision to allow the use of religious premises would belong to the church as a whole or the individual religious officiant. The government indicated little support for this amendment, wanting more open discussion on the whole topic. But given the shortness of time before the general election and the rush to get the Equality Bill through both houses before Parliament is dissolved, it may be that the amendment is accepted. It must then follow as a matter of logic and non-discrimination that a heterosexual couple who reject the notion of marriage whether in church or in a registry office, should also have the option of a civil partnership. Tom Freeman and Catherine Doyle challenged in 2009 the ban on opposite-sex civil partnerships by asking for one at their local registry office. Having been refused, they're preparing to challenge this at the European Court of Human Rights. The Human Rights Act, 1998, requires statutes to be interpreted as far as possible in the light of human rights. But if the statute prevents this, as the CPA does, then the judges can only note the incompatibility and leave the change to the legislature. Article 8 of the Human Rights Act requires respect for private and family life. Article 12 protects the freedom of men and women to marry and found a family. These articles are subject to qualification in that the government mustn't interfere with the rights and that any restriction on them in national law must be justifiable as proportionate and necessary. And the European Court allows each nation some flexibility to express its national customs. This is called the margin of appreciation. The European Court judgments have not so far gone beyond recognising same-sex couples' private life and stopping discrimination against them in that area. The court has not extended its reach into the way states treat same-sex couples as a public issue or status.
So the European Court has disapproved of discrimination against individuals in, for example, child custody decisions or the criminalisation of homosexuality. And the Court accepts that sexual orientation is a ground of discrimination open to attack under Article 14. But Article 14 only prohibits discrimination on various grounds where a substantive right in the Convention is in issue. And so far, the European Court has not raised the issue of the public standing of same-sex unions. There have been two major cases in our courts on the status of same-sex couples since the Human Rights Act. The first was, where is it, uh, Gaydan, which I've already mentioned, before the House of Lords. It concerned the right to take over a protected tenancy after the death of the tenant, who in this case had been the male partner of the claimant. The Rent Act permits this when the claimant was living with the former tenant as, I quote, husband or wife. In the Fitzpatrick case, it had already been held that this right did not extend to same-sex couples, although they could be treated as family for the purposes of the Act. This new case, Gaydan, was an effort to overturn that decision once the Human Rights Act was in force. The claimant based his claim on Article 8, the right to a private and family life, coupled with Article 14, that there should be no discrimination in the rights granted by the state. The majority of their lordships could find no good reason for treating the same-sex partner of a tenant any differently from the opposite-sex partner when it came to succession, and held that the law should be interpreted so as to avoid that sort of discrimination. Baroness Hale, the judge, said, I quote, homosexual relationships can have exactly the same qualities of intimacy, stability and interdependence that heterosexual relationships do. Some people, she said, whether heterosexual or homosexual, may be satisfied with casual or transient relationships. But most human beings eventually want more than that. They want love, and with love they often want not only the warmth, but the sense of belonging to one another, which is the essence of being a couple. And many couples also come to want the stability and permanence, which go with sharing a home and a life together. People of homosexual orientation are no different in this from people of heterosexual orientation. Clearly, when it comes to housing, there could be no objective justification for treating these couples differently. The next case was that of the marriage in Vancouver in 2003 of Professor Celia Kitzinger, author of The Social Construction of Lesbianism, and Sue Wilkinson, Professor of Feminist Studies at Loughborough University. They were married six weeks after same-sex marriage was legalised in British Columbia. Then they came to the UK and wanted their Canadian marriage recognised as such here. They sought from the court a declaration under Section 4 of the Human Rights Act that the provision of the Marriage Act, which says in this country that marriage must be of a man and a woman, was incompatible with the Convention on Human Rights and that 
the Civil Partnership Act, um, which provides that relationships formed overseas, even if they are treated as marriage there, can only be treated as civil partnerships, not marriage here. They challenge that. The consolation prize, they said, of a civil partnership was offensive and demeaning. They wanted marriage. They did not accept that civil partnerships were separate but equal, because they're not equal, symbolically or internationally. They lost the case. The president of the family division held that there was no breach of Article 8 of the Human Rights Act, the right to a private life, because a civil partnership would give them all the benefits of marriage save the name. He held that there was no breach of the right to marry in Article 12 because it specifies men and women. Or even if it could be otherwise interpreted, this was still an area where national law could determine who could marry whom. And there could be, there could be justification for discrimination. In the passage of the few years since this judgment in the Wilkinson case, it is possible that societal views have shifted sufficiently so that as an appeal on the same grounds might have a different outcome. Whatever might be held, one still concludes that English law has lost any clear concept of marriage. I've pointed out how the differences between marriage and cohabitation marriage and civil partnerships have been eroded. But in my last lecture, I also found it inequitable that two sisters, living at least as companionably and interdependently as any two same-sex partners, are denied any sort of benefits. Children are no longer the touchstone of marriage or legally recognised unions nor is fidelity or the same household. One is left with the conclusion that the only relationship that English law protects is sexual. The mistress who may claim from the estate of her deceased lover under the Inheritance Act 1975, the civil partner, the spouse, and sometimes the cohabitant. But the family member, the carer, the sisters, the grandparents, they are pushed back behind the veil and left to their own devices. Transsexuals, of whom it is estimated there are 2,000 in the UK, also have new rights. Originally, they were treated by law as forever the gender which appeared on the birth certificate, which could not be altered. The leading case was Corbett and Corbett. Arthur Corbett married April Ashley, there she is in the top picture, knowing that she had had surgery, this was in the early 60s, she'd had surgery in Casablanca to reassign her from male. She was born George Jimison and became female. Arthur, after living together for 14 days, Arthur Corbett, who was subsequently Lord Roe Allen, sought to have the marriage annulled and succeeded. Ormrod, a judge with medical qualifications, held that the determination of sex at birth by chromosomes was unchangeable and that April was still a man in the eyes of the law. So the law remained until very recently. But in Bellinger and Bellinger, 
There they are. The House of Lords declared that Section 11 of the Matrimonial Causes Act limiting marriage to men and women was incompatible with the European Court of Human Rights, um, sorry, the Convention, insofar as it made no provision for the recognition of the right to marry of a person who had changed sex. Not same sex, but changed sex. This led to the Gender Recognition Act. This followed the case of Christine Goodwin and the UK, which was also in the Court of Human Rights. Miss Goodwin had been born male, but had had gender reassignment surgery on the NHS and was now a woman. While a man, she'd been married and had children, but was now divorced. She alleged discrimination in that her birth certificate remained that of a man and precluded her or embarrassed her in matters relating to pensions, social security, insurance, and so on. And of course, she couldn't marry a man. The court found that the European Convention was broken by British law. The Gender Recognition Act, 2004, now allows transsexuals a new birth certificate and gives them all the rights and status of a new sexual identity. The descent of peerages is accepted and clergymen of the Church of England may refuse to marry transsexuals on grounds of conscience. A gender recognition panel has to certify that the person has changed sex and has spent two years in a new sexual identity. By the end of 2008, 102 certificates had been issued. The anti-discrimination provisions of the Equality Bill of this year extend to transsexuals. Other countries face the same issues and reach different solutions. Same-sex marriage is permitted in South Africa, Mexico City, Holland, Ontario, Quebec, British Columbia and Spain. In Israel, a same-sex marriage entered into somewhere else may be registered as such, although not recognised for all purposes. The most interesting case is that of Massachusetts, that most liberal of all United States. Julie and Hillary Goodrich, that's them, and six other same-sex couples attacked the constitutionality of the state ban on same-sex marriage. In its judgment in 2003, the Massachusetts court agreed that there was no constitutionally valid reason for denying marriage to same-sex couples and gave the legislature 180 days to change the law to rectify the situation. It did not. Over 6,000 couples rushed to take advantage of a new permission by the court to marry, two-thirds of whom were women. The legislature responded by supporting a constitutional amendment prohibiting same-sex couples from marrying, but enabling civil unions. But this failed to pass, as did other legislative bills, with the result that same-sex marriage is legal in Massachusetts by default until 2012, when further laws may be introduced. Same-sex marriages in Massachusetts are not necessarily recognised in other states of America, however, 
because of President Clinton's Defense of Marriage Act. That's a laugh, isn't it? 1996, <laughs> which says that states need not recognize same-sex marriages which are valid in other states, which is an exception to the general rule whereby states recognize each other's acts. At the moment, Connecticut and Iowa have same-sex marriage, and a few American states have civil unions, but the majority do not have provision for same-sex unions. In essence, therefore, if a same-sex couple marry in Massachusetts, in a perfectly legal ceremony, they're married in Massachusetts for state purposes, but not so in many other states, and not so for federal law purposes. Under American federal law, a marriage is defined as a man and woman relationship. Nevertheless, a successful legal challenge to this, going all the way to the Supreme Court of America, looks likely, and with good chances of success. Californian voters, surprisingly, approved Proposition 8 in 2008, which says that only marriage between a man and a woman should be recognized in California. The Californian Supreme Court upheld it, and constitutional attempts to overturn it have so far failed. But that situation seems likely to head to the US Supreme Court too. The most powerful and far-reaching judgment yet given, in my view, is in the South African Constitutional Court case of Fury. It was given by Justice Albie Sachs, who's in the middle of the back row there, himself a hero of the fight against apartheid. And perhaps all the moving and persuasive for that. It is vital reading, you can get it on the internet, but time allows for the citation here of only a few sentences in a judgment that held that the denial of marriage to persons of the same sex was a breach of their equality rights under the South African constitution. Albie Sachs said, the exclusion of same-sex couples from the benefits and responsibilities of marriage is not a small and tangential inconvenience resulting from a few surviving relics of societal prejudice destined to evaporate like the morning dew. It represents a harsh, if oblique, statement by the law that same-sex couples are outsiders and that their need for affirmation and protection of their intimate relations as human beings is somehow less than that of heterosexual couples. It reinforces, he said, the wounding notion that they are to be treated as biological oddities or failed and lapsed human beings who do not fit into normal society and as such do not qualify for the full moral concern and respect that our Constitution seeks to secure for everyone. It signifies, he said, that their capacity for love, commitment and accepting responsibility is by definition less worthy of regard than that of heterosexual couples. It should be noted that the intangible damage to same-sex couples is as severe as the material deprivation. To begin with, he said, they're not entitled to celebrate their commitment to each other in a joyous public event recognized by the law. They're obliged to live in a state of legal blankness, 
in which their unions remain unmarked by the showering of presents and the commemoration of anniversaries so celebrated in our culture. Note there were no civil partnerships in South Africa. Uh, anyway, I think time does not permit, but he gave a very powerful judgment there, um, saying that, I conclude, he said, it follows that given the centrality attributed to marriage and its consequences in our culture, to deny same-sex couples a choice in this respect is to negate their right to self-definition in a most profound way. The court then called on the South African Parliament to change the law, failing which the judges would interpret the Marriage Act in future as allowing same-sex marriage. But he did say that the churches would not have to perform the ceremonies if they objected. There are two issues in all of this which give me unease, and I have referred to them publicly before in the context of amendments in 2008, the Human Fertilization and Embryology Law. And it's about children. What I object to is the new possibility of birth certificates for children born to couples of the same sex, naming two women as their parents. This is logical, but there's an issue of principle here, which is the truth. Sections of the HFE Act of 2008 even allow a dead woman, never known to the baby and not related, to be named with her previous consent on the birth certificate by the choice of the birth mother, while preventing the child from having a father. To my mind, birth registration is about genetic inheritance, albeit that sometimes the truth is not told. And it's about the welfare of the child, not about the relationship, legal or otherwise, between the adults whose will gave rise to the birth of the child. The birth certificate that names two female parents will disclose to anyone who looks at it that the child must have been born from donor sperm or a donor embryo or a surrogate mother. The facts and circumstances apparently accompanying this, will be broadcast whatever the birth certificate has to be produced, government agencies, passport offices, schools, and so on, to gain nationality and overseas. There is, of course, the option of the short birth certificate, which doesn't name parents at all as a way around this. But while I was Googling this the other day, I came across a college that was sending students for a year overseas in France and expressly told them that they had to produce their long full birth certificate, not a short one. The birth certificate is not necessary as a way for two adults of the same sex to gain parental responsibility over a baby. There are other ways to do this. I think that putting two mothers on a birth certificate puts the demands of the adults ahead of the rights of children to know and benefit from both sides of their genetic makeup. It sits uneasily with the ending of donor anonymity in reproduction generally and for the call for mothers to name fathers on birth certificates and it will make future tracing of descent more difficult. Not all unions between two adults can be the same 
or must be treated the same for all purposes. In our law, for example, we don't recognise underage marriages or incestuous marriages. If two parties of the same sex have to seek legal responsibility for a child in court, as opposed to the birth certificate, the court will at least consider the welfare of the child. It should not depend on the fact of birth registration. Article 7 and 8 of the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child provide for the right to know and be cared for by both parents and the right of the child to preserve his or her identity. These rights are threatened by the provisions of the HFE Act 2008. This is not a moral issue. It's about disguising true facts. And it's about confusing biological parenthood, legal and social parenthood. Civil partnerships do still differ from marriage a little. And this is an area where the difference ought to be preserved with justification. I think it's important to preserve the truth. And in fact, titles of honour are exempted from these new provisions about birth certificates. So if it's important for titles of honour, it should be important for everybody else because birth certificates about, are about origins. They're not statements of commitment. But the breach first occurred in that principle when as a result of donor insemination practices, the name of a husband who consented to the practice is entered on the birth certificate and not the name of the sperm donor who remains anonymous in any case for the time being, they're not in future. This highlights to me the need for a fresh and comprehensive review of the function that birth certificates should be carrying out. Are they genetic records? Are they statements of legal responsibility for children? Or are they records of partnership? The other area of regret for me is the removal from the law of the provision in the Human Fertilisation Embryology Act 2000, that when a doctor is considering whether or not to give infertility treatment to a woman, he or she used to have to consider the welfare of the potential baby, I quote, including the child's need for a father. That phrase was removed on the ground that it was discriminatory against single mothers and lesbians and replaced by the need for the doctor to check for supportive parenting, whatever that means. Reproductive services are in fact quite readily available to single women, and it's thought that about 25% of lesbian couples have children. In the rush to make equal all forms of partnership, I would regret it if we completely overlook what we know as best we can ascertain to be the welfare of the child. I regret the downgrading of the father as a person of importance. The law has dismissed the contribution of half the population to the upbringing of the next generation. The removal of the requirement to consider the need for a father is in effect making a fresh statement that the child doesn't need a father no matter how liberally the old law was interpreted. It sends a message to men at a time when many of them feel undermined as providers and parents. 
contrary to government policy in this field. Government policy is that men should take financial responsibility for their children and stay in touch with them after separation. Men should take paternity leave and be involved and have beds in hospital when their partners give birth. Why do we have paternity leave if men aren't important? There's a wealth of research showing that children need fathers, not just two parents. Children need to see complementary roles, the relationship between the sexes, a microcosm of society, as they grow up. Recent reports have placed Britain at the bottom of international league tables for the welfare of children. And we know that boys without fathers do worse at school and turn to worse role models. Research shows that the father's presence gives girls, as well as boys, advantages in educational and social development. The links to the research are on the printed copy of my talk. The limit to same-sex relationships is that they cannot be a reproductive unit in a way that is best for the welfare of the child if they cut out all contact with members of the other sex or falsify the birth registration. Tolerance of both types of parenting, traditional and same-sex, should be ensured. Thank you very much, and I've got a few minutes for questions. There's a roving mic, I gather. I wonder if there's been confusion between marriage and the registration of marriage. And in fact, a view of the fact that there a lot of heterosexual couples are no longer registering their marriage, although strictly legally required to do so, whether the simplest thing, rather than introduce civil partnerships, would not have just mean to remove that necessity. <laughs> that would still not... People that were members of a yeah. faith group could still, of course have their normal ceremonies, it wouldn't stop anybody having a ceremony, and similarly with civil partnerships. The only difficulty there is that vast amounts of state law still depend, not just on marriage, but on your living with someone or having a legal relationship with someone. And you'd have to like completely overturn all the statute books about you know, council tenancies and benefits and all the rest of it, if you are to achieve that. Um, but there have been voices saying for quite a long time that marriage should become more like cohabitation, etc., rather than the other way around. That's true. And I mentioned during the course of my talk a heterosexual couple who want to have their union as a civil partnership. And I would have thought they'd probably win under the Human Rights Act. And once you do that, really, it's a free-for-all for everybody, except for the unfortunate sisters. I gave a lecture on them uh, a while ago. Two sisters don't get the same breaks in law as two people who are in a civil partnership um, or who are married. And I think it's a shame that family members don't get the same <coughs> generosity of treatment. Um, in the, is this working? Yeah. In the um, Human Fertilisation and Embryology um, Bill, there is provisions for welfare of the child. So if evidence came to light that um, the absence of a father figure... 
um, jeopardise the welfare of the child, that would already be covered. So is there need to... Um, so with that in mind, is it still logical to include the need for a father or need for a male role model part of the bill? Well, there is guidance about the meaning of the welfare of the child put out by the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Authority. But I don't think it includes absence of a father, though you might want to have a look. You could find it online. And I guess that would be hard to argue because that was explicitly removed by the amendment in 2008 in favour of welfare, including supportive parenting. And I thought that was a rubbish amendment because if a doctor says to a mother who's looking for treatment, are you going to be a supportive parent? What is she going to say? The point about including the need for a father in the old law was that there was something you could actually look for. But if you're just checking for supportive parenting, there's nothing objective or material to look for at all. It just means that anything goes. Can I ask so, a, a hmm? follow-up question on that one? Then how, how is it easy to see that as not, not discriminatory, considering that a, a woman can go and have sex with a man down an alleyway and give birth to a child and bring it up without any need to prove that a man would ever be involved in, in its That's life. right. The question that you put, of course, undermines the whole need for any control of artificial reproduction at all. And I did do lectures on that last year. And in brief, the argument is that once you move into the realm of artificial reproduction, which involves valuable resources and a sort of public area, then it is right for the state to say what conditions should be applied. Um, humanity and... Um, more importantly, human belief systems is, is extremely dynamic, especially with um, globalisation and cross-border um, relationships, cross-border travel, etc. How do you see the law keeping up with us, humans? It is trying to keep up. I mean, if you take the Equality Bill, which is going through Parliament right now, it prohibits discrimination in just about any field you can think of, whether it's transsexuals or... Um, you know, gender, marital status, nationality and so on. It is trying to keep up. The um, other voices expressed by the churches who fought and actually won various exemptions in the Equality Bill so that if they're advertising, for example, for a Sunday school teacher, they don't have to employ, let's say, an atheist or, or a Muslim if they want someone for... Uh, Sunday school teaching. So the religions fought and got an exemption. And I thought that was right because, arguably, the impulse behind human rights and equality stems, albeit indirectly, from religious teachings and moral teachings in the past. And if you completely blot out what the churches are trying to do, you may in the end raise a generation who can't see why there should be equality in human rights. So I thought it was probably right to let the churches have a bit of leeway. And that human rights itself should be tolerant. Sometimes it's a bit like a new religion. You've simply got to sign up. Um, otherwise, you know, we will crush you. And it's got its high priests, it's got its holy cities in Strasbourg and Brussels, it's got its holy book. And it is in danger sometimes, I think, of becoming as divisive as the religious wars we had in this country three or four hundred years ago. So I think live and let live. Um, I'd like to offer a, a, a totally dissenting view to that which you've just expressed. As a person of faith, I'm fundamentally ashamed of the repeated and successful attempts 
in the name of faiths, and it's not just Christianity, it's all faiths who have been working very cooperatively together in an explicitly homophobic agenda. And I'm frankly very distressed to hear you um, wanting to uphold the right of conservative neo-fundamentalists in all faiths to continue to, to discriminate legally. And in fact, not just to continue, but to have extensions granted to them, particular privileges underwritten by public expenditure uh, to act in a homophobic way. Uh, and if you hadn't just said what, <laughs> what you had, Ruth, um, I might not have become quite as impassioned as I now feel, because what is happening in public law is the creeping theocratization of, of public life. And, that, and a lot of public money is going into supporting discrimination in faith schools, and the exemptions you referred to will permit uh, the indoctrination of young people in a homophobic way. And I think that is going to uh, store up a huge amount of damage to young lesbian and gay people in particular. And it will be, be very difficult for heterosexual people who are actually fully committed to supporting lesbian and gay people to dare to it, it, uh, make public their support for lesbian and gay people in many public contexts. And I would ask you to reconsider your view that the churches and other faith groups should be permitted to discriminate. I think, as a person of faith myself, that we should take our place in society on the, on the terms which clearly give everybody equal rights and that there should be no exceptions on ideological or religious grounds. Well, I don't think the churches are homophobic, and I think you've put it rather extremely. I think they are a valid uh, body of people in this country. A lot of people belong to church one way or another. I think under equality and human rights, you've got to have some tolerance of their views too. I'm not saying that... I mean, under the Children's, Children's Schools and Family Bill, sex and reproductive education will have to be offered even in faith schools. And faith schools will be allowed to say, no, we don't like this, but they'll, they'll have to give them the education. And I think, I mean, the church is still established. If you want to get rid of the established church, um, so be it. But, you know, a lot of people feel that one has to find an accommodation between the religious bodies, who do a fair amount of good, and equality and human rights for all. I wouldn't say they were homophobic. I would say, so. I would say implacably that they are homophobic. Well, that's your view. The way we treated people, a person like Jeffrey John. I worked for an organisation which monitored religiously inspired homophobia. And every week, Examples were brought to our attention of the way in which religions discriminate and, or wish to discriminate subtly and overtly against lesbian and gay people. I'll give you the evidence that it hasn't been brought to your attention already. Well, they'll all have to observe the law in future, which is pretty wide-ranging, that equality bill. Thank you. I mean, I, I, on, just on that issue of, of exemptions for faith, I suppose you know, if you're going to treat all people equally we wouldn't accept a faith treating people differently on the grounds of their race or disability, and I'm unclear why they should be allowed to treat people differently on the grounds of their sexual orientation. But, but because my, we but have to reconcile two things. We have freedom of expression, religion and belief in our human rights law. But it seems and if you put all these human rights together, they actually become almost impossible to operate. If you read the Equality Bill, which runs to hundreds of clauses, you'll see 
We have to find a way of accommodating people who feel strongly about this and people who feel strongly about but, but, the but, other. But if, if Faith was arguing now that you should be allowed to discriminate on the grounds of race or disability, we wouldn't countenance it. So there's a they're double not, standard. They're there. not. I think the only exemptions they've got are for employment in a position which is inherently a religious office, like you know, teaching Sunday school. With, with, with apologies, my original point was going to be about where my party company from at the very end about a need for a father. And actually quite personally, because you know, my mum was a single mum, my father ran off when I was tiny, my sister's lesbian, she and her partner have a, you know, a, a loving and supportive family with a beautiful daughter. And I'm mystified as to why my family or my sisters, in your view, somehow don't come up to scratch. And somehow I haven't don't said come anything of the sort. I've just, all I've said is that the churches in the House of Lords, and not yet in the Commons, managed to get an exemption in relation to employment. There's nothing in the bill that allows them to preach against uh, homosexuality. Well, presumably they've been doing... I mean, there's, you can't stop people... Well, I mean, you can get race-hatred law, I suppose, but, I mean, it's nothing to do with me, what the churches say on Sunday. I don't go. Uh, and you can say what you like unless you break the law. People can stand up and say, you know, women should get back behind the kitchen sink and so on. There's, we have freedom of speech, and sometimes you have to lump it because we do have freedom of speech, unless it strays beyond the law. I have a, a terrible feeling of a kind of Irish situation that we can't get there from here. The poverty of our society, the difficulties of commitments, etc., means that we have to include so many different points of view, and we just can't do that. Do you believe that the law in the, should be reactive or proactive as far as society is concerned? Because that seems mm. to be an area of question. Well, that is a very interesting topic. I mean, it is almost impossible. I do commend that you read the Equality Bill and see what happens when you try and put all these equalities together because some of them just cancel each other out. Freedom of speech and religion and belief, as has been pointed out, comes up against um, other freedoms. The law sometimes leads the way um, and sometimes it follows. I mean, virtually every, every law is different. I mean, in, in some respects... Um, like uh, environmental matters, I suppose it leads the way, and sometimes, probably, in something like the Civil Partnerships Act, it follows. It all depends. Probably in personal matters, uh, it is more likely to get through Parliament if it follows rather than leads. If you don't like provisions in the Equality Bill, write to your MP because it has not yet gone through uh, the House of Commons. Okay? All right, thank you very much. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.